Good morning, everyone. So welcome to everyone this morning. Welcome to people on Zoom. I pray that God really speaks to your heart. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And let's come believing in our hearts that God is the one who directs our steps and he's brought us here and he's ordained this time for us to listen, for us to hear. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from, if you sit here now in the presence of God, it is by God's will and God's will alone that brought you here. And if you believe this by faith, then you know that God has a word for you and your life. If you're behind a computer screen, sitting down in this location, and you get to hear the word of God this morning, you need to have faith to know that this is not by your will, but the will of God. And if you receive this morning his word, it will change your life. It will send you off a lot more closer like Jesus and a lot more like Jesus than you came this morning. God will not waste his word. Every word will bring forth fruit. It will have purpose and it will do what it was sent out to do. So this morning you can come in faith. He will not waste your time. He will feed those who are hungry. So Father in heaven, I pray, Lord God, that as we gather here, Lord, you will feed us because you are the words of life and we are in need of sustenance, nourishment for our spirit, Lord God, that only you can provide the need. You know everyone by name, you know every head bowed before you and I pray this morning that you would cast out every distraction, anything that hinders us from coming to hear and know you, Lord. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray, Father, Lord God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, cast the devil out of this place. Cast him away this hour so that we can submit our ears and our hearts to you this morning, I pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. amen. So I have a very simple question for you this morning. Really, really simple. Probably a very simple message this morning. And the, 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 the question I want to ask you isn't, uh, do you love Jesus, which is probably what you hear a lot of the times in a sermon, you know, do you love Jesus? What I want to ask you this morning is a little bit different, because there's a lot of people who love Jesus, but I want to ask you, are you in love with Jesus? Are you in love with Jesus? When it comes to being in love, we are people who love stories and romance and we, we, we glorify and we admire uh, that, 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 that man who, who, who chased this woman all around the globe and, and he had such devastation and, 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 and stories of triumph where love was just conquered all and we love that. We, we, Hollywood makes a lot of money on this. Because by nature, we love the story of love. But it's not the love story we love. It's the in-love story. Is that right? It's the in-love that we so admire and we think, wow, what a powerful... Because they're in love. Love just doesn't cut it. It's being in love that makes the, the, the blockbuster. 
And there's story after story that we hear, you know, the Romeo and Juliet where they sacrificed themselves for one another because they were in love. They didn't just love one another. In love is like where you're so lost and caught up in that person and nothing else matters, not even your own life. And we love that. We applaud that, don't we? We admire that. We, we rise up on our feet and we clap for that kind of story, don't we? Yes or no, right? There's a story about a man. Actually, no, I'll tell you a story about a woman. Her name is Charlotte Van Sledvin. And she had heard of an Indian artist, painter, who was extraordinary. She was a young girl, 19 years of age. She lived in Sweden. And she had heard about this Indian artist, and she must see him. She must uh, converse, get to know him. And so she did. She travelled from Sweden to India, and she met this artist, and she asked him to paint her. And so he did. He painted her. But in his heart and his mind, he thought to himself, how can I capture such beauty? In fact, at the end of that painting, I don't think he was relieved to feel like he actually mastered her beauty. I think he failed as an artist regarding her portraiture. But as he was painting her, he got to know her. And uh, he, he shared his life and his heart and his passion. And she did the same as he's painting her. And what do you know? The intimacy over this artistic, creative experience drew them so close that they couldn't do any other thing but decide to be together, to get married. And they did. They got married. But she hadn't intended to stay in India. She had a life in Sweden. And so she needed to go to Sweden. And that one day, her husband will come to her. So she went back home. And he was this poor, broken Indian artist who was barely making a meal through selling, you know, a, a little painting. But in his heart, he needed his wife. He wanted his wife. But there was no way of money to get there. He couldn't afford it. So he made up his mind that he would sell everything that he had. And even selling everything that he had, he only ended up being able to buy a, a bicycle. A bicycle. But that did not stop him because he was in love with her. And so the true story goes that he travelled by bicycle over eight countries, painting, selling, making enough money to get to the one that he loves. It took him over four months, over eight countries, to finally be with the one that he loves. So we love stories like that because it's so wonderful, isn't it? And we say love moves mountains. And there is a true story about a man whose wife in a village, in a valley, that had a mountain. And one day his wife falls and injures herself heavily in this place that he needed to seek help, medical assistance. But he couldn't find it because there's this mountain that was blocking the, 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 the hospital from where he is. And sadly, his wife died. It tore at his heart, at his being. It, 
killed him. So that for the next 22 years, he endeavored to make a hole through that mountain. So that anyone, broken, wounded, beaten, could find help. And he cut the 55K into a 15K help. 22 years he dug at that mountain. And everybody laughed at him. They thought this is a joke. This man has lost his mind. But love compelled him. And we love stories like that, right? It's so good. But you know what makes me wonder? What really, really breaks my, my heart is when anyone pursues God, the living God, on that level or that extent or that depth, they're seen as crazy. It's fascinating, isn't it? They're seen as crazy. Fanatics. Even the culture of the church, they're seen as, oh, they're working their way. Look at the works. It just seems like works to me what they're doing. Strange, the culture of the church, when someone is so in love with Jesus, so in love with Jesus, that they will do absolutely anything and everything to get to him, to hold him, to become more like him. Well, that sounds like a work salvation to me. Or they're crazy. And yet we applaud on a human level. But when it comes to God, it's seen as mad. Right? It's like a man who travels a desert in the heat to get the most precious and rare rose, the desert rose, so he can give it to the one he loves. She sees it. He's on his knees. He goes, here, this is for you. And she says to him, oh, you didn't have to do that. And he gets up and goes, oh, okay. Odd, right? Okay, maybe next time I won't. You didn't have to do that. Okay, cool. Fantastic. We have a relationship and I don't need to do that. That's odd. Because a person who did that would say, too easy. No way, I had to. I wanted to. Not because you asked me to do it but because you're worth it. Is that a work salvation? Not at all. I'll tell you what a work salvation is, and this is where people get it wrong. A work salvation is the one who crosses the desert, gets the desert rose, and comes and gives it to her, but doesn't love her. That's work salvation. You understand? He's gone all the way, done whatever he wants to do, climbed the the highest mountain, swam the deepest ocean, comes back with the rose, but in his heart of hearts, he doesn't love her, he loves someone else, but sure enough, he's done it, and he goes, here, that's a work salvation, but the one in his heart of hearts, you can't stop that person. You can't. It's not because they're told, it's because they're compelled, because they're in love. They don't just love God. You, someone who loves God will be dictated what to do and what not to do. Someone who's in love with God, no one can stop them doing what they want to do for him. They're going to be seen as crazy because people in love 
are crazy. You understand? And there's a lot of crazy people in the Bible. And there's a lot of crazy people in church. Not many, few, but they're crazy. They are crazy in love. If I was to give you a really good definition of what in love is, I'd find it really hard. Like, how do you define what being in love is? Now, maybe you can think, you know, the person sitting next to you, that's my, my husband, that's my wife. I'll think, how, what can I describe? But I reckon in simply, I'll give you a really good definition of what I think, maybe it'll help us understand this morning, what being in love is. Being in love is simply loving something no more than this. That's what in love is. Loving no other thing more than this. That's being in love. You're in this love. And everything else outside of that love is like it doesn't exist for you anymore. That's what I reckon is a really good definition of being in love. I cannot love any other thing more. Like if you're in love with your wife, you can't love another wife more. And what's interesting is when you listen carefully to one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible where Christ is drawing love out of someone, his best mate, one of his best friends, Peter, his disciple. If you listen carefully to what Jesus says to him, you actually understand love. And not many people or Christians even actually note this when Jesus was talking to Peter about, do you love me? When he had betrayed him three times. And after all was said and done, Jesus had resurrected and he came back to visit Peter. And there they were sitting down with the fire and bread and fish and they were eating and communing. He says to Peter, do you love me? And most Christians say, well, how many times did Jesus say to Peter, do you love me? They say three. But the reality is, no, he didn't say three. In essence, the summary of that chapter is that Jesus was asking Peter, are you in love with me? But the first time he asked Peter, do you love me? It wasn't, do you love me? Read it carefully. I'll read it for you. He doesn't say to Peter, do you love me? What does he say? If you want to turn to this passage, John chapter 21, verse 15. John chapter 21, verse 15. So we've read this passage so many times. People say, you know, three times Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? That's not true. Jesus asked Peter twice, do you love me? But the first time he says something quite significant. Let's look at it. What does he say? So when they had dined, John chapter 21 verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah... What does he say? You want to read it together? Oh, wow. <laughs> he didn't ask him, do you love me? He said to him something far more significant, something far more beautiful. 
He said to him, do you love me more than these? Remember, in love is loving something, you can't love anything more. So Jesus wanted to know from Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he asking? What were they doing at that time? Who, who were the these? What these? See, they, he says as they were dining. They were dining. So when they had dined, they were, they were sitting down, they were dining, and they were eating. And there's G, Peter, who's very much familiar with the taste of fish, you know. He, he, he's a fisherman. And as they're eating, I reckon Jesus would have looked down and, and looked at the fish and looked at Peter and he says to him, do you love me more than these? And there's a lot of, lot of richness in this, this question. Because what was he actually asking Peter? This, this, this to Peter was his life, you understand? Like the fish was his life. It was his work, it was his food, it was his enjoyment, it summarised his existence. And then he says to him, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than what these things give you? That's what he's asking him. And so the question is, are you in love with Jesus? Do you love him more than this? The things you have, the things you own, the things you eat, the way you live, your job, your fiancé, your husband. Do you love me more than these? And what he's asking is, are you in love with me? You can't follow me unless, not that you love me, a lot of people love Jesus, but you can't follow me unless you understand the road of this relationship is embedded in being in love. Being in love means you can't love anything else more than me. That's why when Jesus teaches us, he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, very simply, he says, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy. You can't, you can't follow me. You're not, it's not, you're not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If I was to create a 21st century Bible version, translation, so that people can understand that in today's modern context... Unless you're in love with me, in love with me, more than you love any other thing, you can't be a Christian. That's what he's saying, guys. In fact, I'll tell you what he's really saying. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, he makes it very clear. He draws the, the line in the sand, a very clear line in the sand. And if you want to define what kind of love is this, in chapter 14, verse 26, what does he say? He says, if any man come to me, and what's the word he uses here? What is it? Hate. hate. <laughs> if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be a Christian. So I don't know. I mean, if, you, if you're confused in, on Matthew, the passage in Matthew, then let's look at Luke and get better clarification. And he's defining what this love looks like. This love, listen, this love, if it's not invested, embedded in only me, then 
everything else must be hated. Anything that does not contain being in love with Jesus must be despised. That's what he's saying. It must be seen as, as, as bad. Anything outside of being in love, you can't be a Christian. Now, theologically, you can look at that and you can dissect it and whatever, right? And I'll leave that up to you. You could study it, go read the commentaries, whatever. But in the end, understand this. You will not fulfill all the goodness of God and all the riches of heaven and all that God had planned for you on the cross to be given to all those who believe in him. You will not fulfill it. It will not be completed. It, you will not be arrayed with all the glory unless you're in love with him. You will always fall short in your Christian walk if you are not in love with him. You will always trip and fall up and down if you're not in love with him. And that's what he's saying. You can't follow me. A disciple requires to be in love, in love with Jesus. We've always been told this from the beginning, even from the beginning since the creation, even in the time of Abraham, when God says, Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him for me. So the message never changed. This is the message which we have preached from the beginning that John writes to, his, to the saints. God is light and in him there's no darkness. There's no compromise. Take your son and offer him up at the altar. Now I want to show you what God does and how beautiful God is. Because this message may not appeal to everyone. But I tell you the truth, those who are in love with him, they're floating right now. <laughs> you know, those who are in love with him, their hearts are in awe. They're ready to stand and they lift their hands up to heaven. But those who aren't in love with him, they'll struggle, they'll wrestle. But you can't wrestle with this passage, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Look at this. Genesis chapter two, 22, verse 1 where God calls Abraham to take his very son and sacrifice him, fulfilling the words of Jesus Christ, who says, unless you love me more than your father, mother, sister, brother, your own children. Here it is, embedded in the Old Testament. Some people say, oh, the Old Testament is just Old Testament, leave it alone. The Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come. The Old Testament is showing you pictures of what the truth is going to be manifested when Christ is here. What you see in Abraham, when Abraham obeyed God, it was Grace. When Abraham obeyed God, grace was poured out upon him in the Old Testament. When Abraham believed by faith, it was no longer credited to him by works. It was faith that granted him to be righteous. But look at his faith. His faith took his son and he was going to sacrifice him on the altar. That's faith. Faith isn't singing a song. Faith isn't just believing in the Bible. Faith isn't just coming to church. Faith isn't just loving God. Faith is being in love with him so much so that you don't love anything more. That's what, it, that's, that's what that passage is. That's grace. I see grace there. Where Abraham didn't have to please God. Abraham was compelled. You know what I mean? And because he had he believed God said it and because God is God and 
he said it, I do it. That was said, you know, enough, said, done. That is righteousness. That man believes in me. And that's to every Christian. If you're thinking to be a Christian is to obey the laws and the standards and this and that, you've got it wrong. But to be in love with him is what he says makes you a Christian. And so look at Abraham. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. He did. He tested him. Look, look at this. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. This is, the, this is here I am is, is a, the, 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 the one who's available. Here I am. You see that a few times in the Bible. Here I am, Lord. Like I'm ready. Whatever you want. Here I am. Verse 2. And he said, Take now thy son, your only son. Don't, don't rub it in. God said to him, Take now your son. No. He said, Take now your only son. Let's poke it a little bit. Don't rub it in, God. Fair enough. I know he's my only son, but you don't have to kind of, you know, tell me. Just, okay, just take your only son, whom you love. All right, relax. He pinpoints two significant things that a man or a woman or anyone's going to hold on to. The only thing and the thing you cherish those two things, and he verbalizes them to, to Abraham. You understand? He didn't say, Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. I know, Abraham, your issues. I know the complexities of humanness. You know, I know what it feels like. And I want you to, and he, and he makes it known by his Holy Spirit what that very thing is. He'll let you know that's how good God is, you see? He'll tell you what that problem is, what that issue is. He's not going to leave you in the dark and say, hey, I just want you to be a Christian, Abraham. He's going to say to you, I know your pride. Yeah, he's going to let, the word of God is a sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide asunder the, the, the thoughts and the intents. You know, like The Holy Spirit is there to direct you and teach you. God's not going to leave you in the dark because he's perfecting you. He's cleaning you up. And he, he, he pinpoints certain areas of your life like he did with Abraham. Your only son and the one you love. Now, this is what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take him and sacrifice him for me. Now, what's bizarre to me and extraordinary, where are all the theologians here? Where are all the theologians when it comes to this passage? Listen. Listen to this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, get into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell you of. I don't know where the mountain is, but I know what God wants. How many people will make an excuse, no, that's not what God wants because I don't know where the mountain is. Surely it's not now, it's not, you know, I'll take my time. I don't know the steps, I don't know the direction. Therefore God doesn't want me to do this. No, it's not true. God's told you what you must do and you don't need to know everything about it. All you've got to do is obey what God says. Now we go from verse 3 with, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass. That's it. We don't hear anything about Abraham's complaint. We don't hear anything about him wrestling out what God wanted. We don't hear the theologians putting in a verse saying, oh, this is why it happened and this is what really God meant and what... Nothing. We hear God's command and we hear man's obedience. That's all we see. That's why it says that he did not stagger 
at the promises of God. It was the fact that he didn't stagger at the promises of God that was credited to him to be righteous. This was a man who obeyed God. I think it's Francis of Assisi says, who, who, he who hesitates sins. But this is not Abraham demonstrated, you see. God said it and he did it. But I'll tell you what's beautiful about this passage is I, I think, what, what was he feeling? Was he like a man that was numb? No emotions? Or was his heart breaking every step he took? But he took the step while his heart was breaking. It's not like, it's not like uh, he's like God all of a sudden uh, put some kind of a, a dome over him that ripped all his uh, nervous system out and he couldn't feel anymore. No, but he carried it, you see, because the voice is greater than his own emotions. See, love is greater than what you feel. See, if you love, you will do. Not complain or whinge or, you know. And that's what he did. He was broken, he was hurting, he was pained. But God told him, and because God told him, he knows God. Now, what's beautiful is this, and this is what I want to show you. That the true worship of God cannot be without being in love. Unless you're in love with him, everything else sounds babble. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians tells us. It's like clanging symbols. The true worship of God is embedded in being in love. Look at this. Then on the third day, beautiful word, third day, it shows you the power, the resurrection, you know, the obedience. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. It was manifested, it was revealed. I didn't know where I was going, but now I see the place. I see what's going on, I see the vision, God's fulfilling it. He's called me to do something. He's provided it now. I didn't understand it all, but there it is. And Abraham said unto this, his young men, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and do what? 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 Worship. The sacrifice of my son is going to be the worship to my God. Him, a sacrifice, we are going to worship God. It's true worship. The complete obedience to the word of God is true worship. Not the neon lights, not the smoke, not the loud music, but the true sacrifice that comes to the altar of God in love is true worship. Because you're in love. I want to share two aspects of love. I'm not going to leave you here without giving you some, some direction. But there's two aspects to love. Two aspects. Because the world is a playground, right? And if you, if you look at the world as a playground, and we're all trying to love, look at the playground with a seesaw and a swing. Because love is a little bit like this. And maybe you'll remember this when you go to a playground one day, right? The swing, you can sit in it, and it does nothing. 
You might as well sit on the sofa or on a chair until it's what? Until it's activated. Love is like that. Love isn't a feeling where you're sitting down on the sofa and you're comfortable. Love is action. You've got to push the swing. And God's going to push for you. And you're going to swing. And you know once you're activated, what happens? You can keep yourself going and going and going. And you can go higher and higher. And such is love in this playground that we're in. Love is active. Don't get caught up with the sensual feeling of I'm a Christian. Rather, enjoy the experience of being a Christian by action. Action. Not because you have to or because someone told you, but because that's what happens when God pushes. But God will say, take that very thing you love, the only thing you have. And there's a push. And love says, I'll obey. It's active. In fact, I challenge you all, go to the New Testament and read everywhere where it says God loved us, God loved us. Read everywhere where it says God loved us and see if you can find a passage that does not have an action after it. Like for example, I'll read you some. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. For this great love wherewith he loved us has quickened us together with Christ. There's the love, there's the action, made us alive. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Christ also loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. There's love and there's the giving. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, has, uh, the Father which has loved us has given us everlasting consolation, good and hope. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and there's many you just keep reading he said god loved us and then there's an action and that's why jesus says if you love me you will what keep my commandments, keep my commandments. There's, a, there's an action and then there's the seesaw in the playground and this is a very important aspect of love that maybe hopefully you can understand and it'll maybe help you in your relationship when you're on a seesaw to keep each other balanced, both parties must be of equal weight and of equal strength. And such is good love. You can't have one party dragging their feet if you want to have an experienced love. You understand? Like if I fall short of my, my, my wife's love and my love, my wife is always, always, always forgiving, always, always merciful, but I decide I need to be nice on Monday. Or I'm not always forgiving. After the tenth time, I'm not. You're going to find our love looks like this with me and it's always going to be inconsistent and not experienced to its fullness. Is that right? But if you've got love that's equally balanced, for example, Jesus Christ who's calling you to come and walk in his love, sacrificed his whole life for you. There is nothing he held back from you. He gave his own life, that love, how do you think you're going to enjoy it and experience it and know it to the max? By dragging your feet in it or by doing what? Doing the same. Not because you have to, but because you'll miss out if you don't. Because it's just natural to love him the way he loves us. Sacrifice. Blood. Shed. Well, that sounds like work, so here we go again. 
It's not works. It's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. Now you're asking yourself, okay, then how do I fall in love with him? I want to fall in love with him. How do I do it? And I'm going to keep it really simple for you. I'm not going to uh, make it a theological study. But many, many years ago, when we first became Christian, there was a beautiful song we used to sing. And the song was like this. How can I fall in love with him? The more I get to know you, the more I fall in love. The more I listen, the more I fall in love. The more I see you giving, the more I give my love. So how do I fall more in love with Jesus? Well, you, you, you can't unless God does something. You see, unless God comes and cleanses you from your sin, you can't. It's like the story that we heard last week where the Mary came into the house and she couldn't help but break the alabaster, alabaster box at the feet of Jesus because Jesus had forgiven her, cleansed her. And she would never have had that experience if what? He did not first wash her clean. That's what the Bible says. We only love him because why? Because he first loved us. So how do I fall more in love with Jesus? Well, ask yourself the question, have you been forgiven? Like you've been washed by the blood of Jesus? Because if you really receive his grace and his mercy, you can't help but love him. He comes and he gives and then you just love him. Do you know your sin that is dragging you to hell? Like, Do you know that your sin is the cause of all the other conflicts in your life? That your sin is the very thing that's dragging you away from God? But God looked upon you and says, you know what, I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm going to come and I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. And if you believe this and accept this, when he removes your sin, you will love him. And, and, and I want to know more. Look, how do I fall in love with him? Okay, well, I'll tell you how you fall in love with him. The more you listen. So what he'll do, he'll do what he did with Abraham. Do you know that very thing that you've got? Okay, do you love me? I love, yeah, okay. Do you want to be in love with me? Okay, if you want to be in love with me, remember, we have to be equally weighted, right? Okay, so what I did, I obeyed my father. So let's look at Jesus' example. Whatever the father wanted, I did. There wasn't anything that the father asked of me I didn't fulfill. So when the father said, go to the left, I went to the left. When the father said, go to the right, I went to the right. Now, if you want to be more in love with me, you've got to be equally balanced like me. So that means God, my father, is going to test you. He's going to try you. He's going to bring sufferings, challenges, hardships, and he's going to allow you to know what I felt. And when you know what I felt, you're going to love me. Someone's going to come and they're going to smack you on the face. And God the Father, by His Holy Spirit, is going to say to you, turn the other cheek. Turn it. Turn the other cheek. And you will turn the other cheek. And when you turn the other cheek, you're going to feel a sting in your face that I felt. And you're going to love me. Because you feel me, man. <laughs> We're the same. You're going to be betrayed, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be mocked, you're going to sweat. But every day 
when the challenge comes and God says to you, see that only thing you cherish, the very thing that you love, put it aside, because if you don't put it aside, you'll never know what Jesus knew. You'll never know how Jesus was. But when you know how he is, you will fall more and more in love with Jesus. That's why Christianity, uh, uh, faith isn't a religion. See, faith is an opportunity. (laughs) It's an opportunity for you to take a hold of the Word of God, embrace it, and enjoy the power that he grants to all those who believe. Rather than this thing, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You have been blessed beyond measure that God the Father brought upon his word upon your ears. Why? Not to dictate for you, but to give your life and life abundantly. That's what Jesus said. Because if you heed the words of Jesus Christ, you fall more and more in love with him that everything else around you does not matter anymore. And such is peace. That the concerns of this world and the concerns of our relationships and everything does not matter anymore. I am in love with Jesus. With Jesus. Let me share with you one verse and I'll finish. First John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if this is the way that God has loved us, we ought also, we ought also to love one another. The way Jesus walked, the way we walk. That's why we're called followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not in love with Jesus, you're missing out on life, to be honest. (laughs) You are. And that's all right. You don't have to. But those who want to, I'm saying you can. And you're welcomed to because of Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And as you have your heads bowed, I want you to ask ask yourself, am I in love with Jesus? Am I in love with Jesus? And if you find yourself lacking in any area of your love, then again, just come and listen to him. Come and listen to him. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus all the way. Don't hold back. Don't keep back. But if you want to be in love with Jesus, let go and leave everything and follow him. Let him be the one to lead you in this love. I'm going to just give you a moment just to pray. You and the Lord. As the Lord speaks to your heart, respond. And if you're watching this online, again, Nothing will stand in the way of God, whether you're here or there. It's God that speaks. Listen to his voice. This day, 
you can walk away in confidence, in joy, that you have found the one you love. And he's your everything. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord God, that every head and heart bowed before you, that you will continue to draw us deeper and closer into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may experience and know him, being conformed to his suffering, that we are renewed daily, this abundant love that floods our hearts for him and for nothing else. Teach us to love you, and we pray that you continue to work in our lives in such a way that will draw more and more deeper love toward you. Teach us to obey. Teach us to leave behind. Teach us to despise those things that hinder us from loving you with all our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Sing to the only God. To